the Future Proof Podcast from Newstalk. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag believe in science. Hello and welcome to Future Proof on News Talk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to get in touch with the program, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at News Talk Science. Or you can text us for 30 cent 53106. We get to all of those comments in the podcast. Listen and subscribe for free on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. Coming up on this week's program, NASA astronaut Nicole Stott on what being in space can tell us about life on Earth. First, though, uh, it's time for the week's science news. And Dr. Susan Kelleher from DCU joins us, as does uh, Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD. You're both very welcome. Our first story. Shane is quite a remarkable one. Uh, It's to do with the first transplant of a pig's heart into a human patient. What exactly happened? Uh, yeah, this is a perhaps a long time coming, but it's finally here. So a 57-year-old American man who was, for, for complex reasons, ineligible for a human heart uh, transplant, received a genetically modified pig's heart uh, through a xeno transplant. Um, and uh, this was genetically modified uh, actually by a spin-off company from the, the UK Institute that produced Dolly. Uh, the sheep back in 1996, interestingly. Oh. And uh, they genetically um, edited the, the heart such that it doesn't have the same sugars in the cells that would lead to an immediate rejection of, of the heart. And, and, and those things are there for good reason. If you stick something alien into the human body, the body should reject it because it could cause all sorts of problems. You know, you wouldn't want to kind of start appropriating things around us. Um, but of course, we wanted this to switch off for this gentleman. And uh, so the surgeon practiced uh, with these gene edited hearts by putting them into baboons. And um, uh, he did that 40 times, seemingly. And last year, we spoke about uh, using the same sort of gene edited kidneys and uh, inserting them into deceased bodies and seeing them start to work. So what, what's different here is that this, this is a living person. He had very few other options. He was effectively going to die. So he signed up uh, for this procedure and he has a pig's heart in his body and he's still alive. Now, it's only a few days since this has happened and it is very early to say whether it is a success or not, but it is a massive leap forward. And of course, we all hope for that gentleman that he does survive and he's able to lead somewhat of a normal life afterwards. I'm not quite sure whether he's going to want to eat pork, but uh, Mm. maybe that's just bad, my bad humor. Do you know, um, there is a story to be told about these first patients who um, over, certainly when we talk about heart transplants, who have endured uh, sometimes really uncomfortable deaths uh, as a result of venturing into the unknown. And each of those steps has taught us about what the the body can and can't tolerate. And actually the the history of heart transplantation itself is a a sad and fascinating one. Um, But uh, it's amazing that it has lasted this long. Um, it, we should point out that this was recorded just before um, the, the the broadcast date. So, um, as 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 time of recording, he is still uh, surviving and thriving thriving on this heart. This is a, um, a I suppose a rare enough scenario. Shane, does it lead the way to to more 
more regular transplants because of course if we can use the hearts of pigs which we we eat for food we have an unexhaustible or inexhaustible supply of, of our vital organs um it, you, there are huge ethical issues with doing this but uh, we already do use pig heart valves and have used them for decades in in humans so there is precedent here but we have to be really careful about this um but like for, for anyone who lives with heart disease or has any other sorts of organ failure, th- this could be a way to live a healthier life. Um, but we just have to be careful as we go. And uh, for anyone who is suffering with, with heart issues at the moment, I, I wouldn't imagine there's necessarily going to, to be a quick solution for them. But science kind of has that longer horizon. And we really yeah. do have to be very, very grateful for brave people like this man in America who are willing to take part in, let's face it, a huge experiment um, because it may not work out for him. It may not work out for the next person, but but maybe 20 or 30 people down down the road, it might work and it'd be safe. We'll definitely be following this story with great interest. Susan, our second piece has to do with multiple sclerosis. Yeah, this is a fascinating story that... Um shows we know that ms is a chronic inflammatory disease that where your your spine the myelin sheets that are in your spine get attacked um and then there's a, a virus called the epstein um bar virus which affects right 95 percent of adults it's quite mild generally um and it, it's the virus that causes mono um but work has been published this week in science that connects the two and this group in Harvard have shown um, pretty substantially now at this stage that the presence of Epstein-Barr, the virus, is very, very likely to cause um, MS. So this is phenomenal because if MS is caused by a virus, um, there's a very high chance that you might be able to then take antiviral medication to stop it in its tracks. Um, the work was done by a group in Harvard. They looked at 10 million soldiers over the lifetime of their service. And over that um, 10 million, uh, out of that 10 million, 995 of these soldiers were diagnosed with MS. And what they were able to do was track the amount of, in, in their serum, they were able to see the amount of the, the neurodegenerative biomarker that is present in MS. They were able to follow the formation of that over time. And the people who formed MS, um, who, who developed MS, they, were 32 times more likely to have this um, virus than people who who had the virus but didn't have MS. Are you, so, are you trying to tell me that they have found the primary cause for MS? Yeah, it's a really great story. It's really interesting. And it's a study that it's going to be very hard to otherwise, uh, yeah, it's kind of, it'll soon be fact, I imagine, because there's no other, the authors have stated that there's no other um, risk factor that they can identify in, in such a strong manner as this virus. Um, and oh what God. happens is, yeah, the virus, like we, we get it, it's in our system, as I said, 95% of adults get it, but then it lies dormant and maybe it does things, you know, under the, under the radar and we don't detect it. An MS early stage is very hard to detect. So they haven't really been able to see the, the correlation until now where they've done this enormous study over kind of over about a decade. Um, so, so uh, you, um, just to, because this is, absolutely huge if, if what i'm saying what i'm understanding is correct mm. you're saying that um that over this enormous study they found one strong um correlation that is a is a virus that you can contract um like any other virus that that goes on to 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 cause 
multiple sclerosis. Uh, are, are, the pay, are the authors suggesting that this is the sole and only cause of MS? So they're, they're confident that it is. There are other genetic, I think there's around 900 other genetic factors that are, you know, that people with MS can have and can show. But there's such a strong correlation between the two of these. The problem is the, the length of time between when you get the virus and then when you're diagnosed with MS. So there's still a lot to understand, but they really do show a huge, significant, like not even huge, but like 32 fold uptake in, in sort of the people who develop uh, MS have this uh, Epstein Barr virus in their system. So, so, so create a vaccine for Epstein Barr, eliminate MS. You don't even need a vaccine. You just need an antiviral drug. It's a type of herpes virus. So it's really just, I mean, you know, it's going to have to be, you know, confirmed and checked and, and continued studies. But the, the antiviral medication is available for this. It's very wow. straightforward. Oh, my God. Very exciting. Um, our third story, Shane, um, is, is, I suppose, on the less exciting scale, but very interesting nonetheless. No, um, it's way better. It, this is way, way better. This is what all science should be about. Tearless onions, Jonathan, you know, yeah. um, and perhaps there are people listening that feel they have every gadget in their kitchen. And I wonder, do they have onion goggles? I just Googled it and they retail for about 30 euros in Ireland. Um, completely ridiculous. Uh, to have these. You just put your onion in the fridge and it doesn't make your eyes cry. I think any chef would know that. So, but um, the German giant buyer, they have developed tearless onions and they're on sale now in um, in the UK. So yeah, they've overcome the onions natural defense system. Uh, uh, so onions have uh, the ability to make us cry as a way to stop animals from eating them. So what happens is when you cut through the onion cell, <laughs> Uh, you 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 break a sealed vacuole, and uh, that then releases enzymes and chemicals and whatnot, and uh, they react with each other and they produce something. And Susan's going to laugh at my pronunciation: uh, propen ethyl s oxide. Did I get it right, Susan? She's she's nodding. So uh, <laughs> it it uh, when it, it it's very light, it floats up into your eyes. And your it burns your eyes, and your eyes produce tears in order to get it out of your eyes, and, right. and so that's what happens when we cut onions. But Bayer have um, through uh, they haven't done gene editing or anything like that here. This is not genetically modified. It's just crossbred mild onions again and again and again until they get the mildest onion, and uh, they're now available. They are three times the price of your regular onion, but if this is something that causes you pain. Um, emotional or otherwise, science now has the answer for you. Tearless onions. Are they are they as tasty though? They're very sweet. So um, sweet. it would depend on what you're you're doing. Um, but I, I think that is the key question. Are they tasty? Mm. They want to be tasty for three times the price, right? Mm. Right? Am I right? I'm right. You are. Uh, <laughs> finally, <laughs> finally, Susan, um, a really interesting uh, innovation, a corkscrew shaped robot uh, tell us about this. What, what is the point of it? So, yeah, I work in the area of nanoscience. So this is a really interesting story because I'm always looking to uh, figure out how to get drugs into the body to the right location to do the job they need to do there when they get there. Um, and that's a big problem. We need kind of essentially Ubers for getting drugs to the place that they need to do their, their work instead of going on elsewhere and having some ill side effects. So this is a 3D printed micro robot that's made of a soft polymer material that's also magnetic. And so what the researchers have done, and this is published today in uh, or this week in ACS Nano, and it comes from Hong Kong, 
they've done this work where they can use a magnet to direct um, this little 3D printed robot into uh, and along a, a vein. And it goes against the blood flow and it gets to where there's a blood clot in the vein. And when it gets there, the uh, propelling, it's kind of like a corkscrew, uh, a propelling tail allows it to move in through the clot and break it up in a really controlled manner. Because if you just give um, anti-clotting agents in the bloodstream directly, first of all, they have to get where they're going. And then second of all, when they get there, they can often break down the clots in a very irregular manner, which actually just makes further problems down the line when the yeah. clot parts are moving further on. So this little robot is able to move in um, and break down the, the clot very gently and with great control, which then should hopefully lead to fewer problems down the line for these types of clotting. Now this is done in in vitro, which is in the lab, um, as I said, in a sort of a fake vein that they made with pig's blood um, as the substrate. Um, but it's just a really nice starting, just starting point to show where we can get with this type of technology um, and very creative uh, science, I must say, in this paper. You can uh, see a, a picture and a video of, of this fella in action on our Twitter page. It's twitter.com forward slash News Talk Science. Dr. Susan Callagher from DCU and Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD. Thanks very much. Now, as a NASA astronaut, Nicole Stott spent time on both the International Space Station and the Space Shuttle. In fact, over 100 days in space. And it was because of these experiences in space, staring back at the Earth, it made her realize just how precious and beautiful our planet truly is. In fact, she wrote a book about it. It's called Back to Earth, What Life in Space Taught Me About Our Home Planet and Our Mission to Protect It. She joins me now. Uh, welcome back uh, to the program, Nicole. Great to see you again. Thank you, Jonathan. Great to be here with you. Um, when astronauts finish their, their duty, it is, is often a thing that they, they write their memoir of, of their entire life. Um, and that is the first book that they publish. And this is interestingly, not exactly the approach that you've taken. There are, there are stories, really interesting stories about how you became an astronaut and so on. But it, this, this book is more of a plea or a call to action. Um, tell me uh, what the idea is behind the book. Yeah, and thank you for, I, I love those words, plea and call to action, because uh, that's the way I, I feel about it. Um, I, I think really I want people to recognize our uh, like precious, important role as crewmates and not passengers here on Spaceship Earth. And those, you know, those may seem like subtly different things, but um, I think they're profoundly different. And the way that we have lived and worked as crewmates internationally uh, on board the space station for over 20 years showed me how, how impactful that can be in a very positive way. I think there's no a greater symbol of a team working um, in, in perfect harmony than the idea of a, a space crew on the ISS. Before we get into... Um, what the the principles are that you've sort of learned from from your time is it is it all really that perfect the the interactions between crew and and their work the tools they use it always seems like this is the the height of 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 interpersonal relationships and and professionalism is it always that perfect in in space well, I think the way it works out is that, you know, we show each other that we can actually deliver on that kind of interaction with each other. You know, we're human beings. It's never, ever going to be perfect, right? And thankfully, we have 
you know, our program managers and the folks on the ground that help, you know, help navigate that international relationship side of things, the diplomacy, the pop, the politics of it. But oh my gosh, I think the result has has been just so beautifully presented to us, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we see that everybody's not always going to agree on everything. And yet we somehow, if we have this higher mission, which I would say on the station with our motto off the earth for the earth, you know, we realize that everything we're doing there is ultimately about improving life on earth. And that becomes a really wonderful driver for us to figure out how to work together. Because whenever you listen into the um, conversations of, of astronauts, you know, either between each other or to, to, to base stations back here on earth, the, the the tone of voice always seems so clear and confident and assured. And, and it's one of the things that I, I suppose helps with this myth of um, the idea of this astronaut as being near superhuman, which, which we, as we know is, is, is not, is not the case. It's a certain type of person, but, but um, astronauts are people too, as you say. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you, you know, I thank goodness we don't have to be superhuman. I don't think I'd be here talking to you if that was, that was the case. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot of what allows us to, you know, have the results we do, the, the, this peaceful, successful interaction that we have, the, the deliberateness, the diligence in our work together is that, is that higher mission for sure. And then in parallel with all that, I mean, what are we doing in our training? We are always trying to consider, figure out what the worst case scenario is and how you deal with that together. And at the, you know, underlying all of that is the reality that we have to be there for each other. We have to have each other's backs. We have to understand not just the systems of the station, but the way we work together as well. And, 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 and underlying all that, I would say, is that you know, we've built this place in space to work together, this mechanical life support system, to mimic as best we can what Earth does for us naturally. And we know that we have to to deal with the reality of that in space, how much CO2 is in our atmosphere, how much clean drinking water we have, the health and well-being of all our crewmates in order to survive. And that's a pretty compelling thing to have to be aware of, you know, like every day. And I don't think it's any different for us down here on Earth, but somehow we we don't seem to be like as actively aware of that situation. So talk to me about the book then. There are sort of principles to living life that you have learned from the book. Um, take me through some of these um, and, and explain why you came to that position. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a really complex thing to go live and work on a space station, right? Just launching off Earth to get there, living and working there even for a short period of time, coming home safely, all of that. And, you know, in all of it, I came really back to Earth with three very simple lessons in mind. You know, this idea that, oh, my gosh, we live on a planet. You know, who knew? I mean, that's something we all learn when we're you know, five years old or something. And we don't necessarily maintain it with us, you know, actively in our lives. You know, that we're all Earthlings. Only border that matters is that thin blue line of atmosphere. You know, again, this, you know, the kind of this analog to living on a spaceship. And to be crew members, to live like that, um, aware of this, this spaceship kind of environment, there's kind of these ways that I think have come about as crewmates that we employ. You know, everything is local. 
You know, there, there is, you know, act like everything is local because it is. And when you look at Earth as a planet and you don't have to go to space to recognize that, right, to know that. It's like that, you know, everything is local. Anything I'm doing at, at, at my home, my city, my, you know, country has some impact on the rest of the planet in one way or another. Um, respecting the thin blue line. You know, this is on a spaceship, that's about the integrity of your thin metal hull. And yet here, you know, this this atmosphere that we have, that when we go outside, I'm looking out the window now at this gorgeous blue sky, and we it looks like it goes on forever, right? And yet it's this veil, this veil of protection that wraps around us. And there's so much that goes into having to acknowledge that. And, you know, living like crew, not passengers. That's, that crosses everything, you know, in the book. I think ultimately that is the call to action. How do you take on this role as a crewmate and not a passenger? I mean, imagine if the six or seven of us went to the space station and we just, you know, we didn't worry about how the, the machine was behaving or what was going on with our crewmates. It would not be a good scene <laughs> that way. Um, this, this idea of going slow to go fast, um, that comes out in every emergency scenario. Now, if you're freaking out, if you're not paying attention to, you know, what's going on around you, if you're not actively aware of all, where all your crewmates are, there's a, you know, there's a level of, of care and response that's not just going to happen as, as successfully as then if you don't. Um, there, I think one of the chapters is called Never Underestimate the Importance of Bugs. And that that really is about how there's so much underlying the surface of everything that, that we look at that's surrounding us. And that's whether it's with respect to the relationships we have with each other or to the other life we share the earth, you know, with down to the microscopic level and how there's significance in all of that and the way we survive and hopefully thrive. Um, staying grounded, that's kind of a, you know, you know, when you think about being in space, you're like, what do you mean staying grounded? Well, that's, you know, that's a, you know, that's an emotional, a um, healthy kind of response to wherever you are. And um, which I think then results in you being a good crewmate. And then whatever you do, make life better. That's that I think wraps it all up is like in all of how we live like crew, it's ultimately about improving life on earth for all life that we share the planet with. Uh, you, you talked about um, sort of keeping a cool head in um, stressful circumstances. Did you have many of those? Were there, were there times on the, um, the International Space Station where you thought, this is really not good? <laughs> I think, you know, we train so much for all these things that, could, that we think we know could potentially go wrong and how we'll work as a crew to, um, to respond to those. So I think we had situations, I mean, a number of them where, and it always seems like it's three o'clock in the morning, the big, you know, the klaxon alarm is going off, you know, imagine something that's like at least three times as bad as any smoke alarm in your house, you know, ringing in the middle of the night. And I think it was one of the things that made me proudest to float out of my crew compartment into the module and to see all of my crewmates responding as we were trained on earth to do. And so I think that kind of I mean, it really reassures you that, wow, we could, as, as best as humanly possible, we can do what we can to deal with this. And, and it's another thing that I think parallels how we could be behaving here on Earth, you know, acknowledging when it's hitting the fan, you know, when it's really not going the way you want it to. And in some cases, that's going on right now, right? Mm -hmm. We need to have each other's backs and, um, and respond as required. <laughs>
Do you have a specific example? Could you tell me a story about um, a specific one? I think one that really stands out to me is, um, and it was, it was like three o'clock in the morning, the alarm's going off. It's telling us that our space station is depressurizing or that the air that we need to breathe is spewing out of the space station in some way. And, um, and silencing the alarm and dealing with it and watching how we all were using all of our senses too to try to figure out if this was real. I mean, if, if the station, the first thing you're saying is, man, if my space station was spewing out all the air, my ears would be popping, the pressure would be changing. And you're like, ah, that's not happening. So that's a good sign. You know, I can continue to, to deal with the problem. And thankfully, the, the situations that we had while I was on board, you know, the indications were that they could be really bad. You know, a fire. You don't want a fire on your space station. You know, one of those depressurizations. You don't want the air spewing out of your space station. And you don't want like toxic ammonia, you know, entering the atmosphere. And we had alarms for all three of those kinds of things. And thankfully, even though there might have been some kind of problem going on, it wasn't, you know, at the extreme that we had to, you know, evacuate the station or that anyone was hurt. And so that's a good thing. When people read this book, they, they will um, certainly be uh, compelled to think about their own role in this larger fight of climate change. And in America right now, there is um, two very polarized factions. And, and I know that astronauts generally try to stay out of politics for, 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 for good reason, because NASA needs the budget and there needs to be agreement on, on, on both sides to, to get um, funding through sometimes. But I'm wondering, as um, as an American astronaut, having written this book, a lot of the ideas I would say um, would would sound very much like a Democrat um, friendly ideas. And I'm wondering, you know, will um, is that something you think about to, to you know when you're writing to to not not uh, um, try and politicize something that that clearly is quite political in a way? Yeah, I I mean I I tried to keep it as. Uh apolitical, non-political as, you know, as you could, because I don't think, I don't think this is a partisan thing. I mean, I think this is an earthling thing. Mm. And I mean, I, um, I have a lot of Republican friends who are right on board with everything I've said in this book. So I, I, I don't, I really don't believe it's a, a party kind of thing. But what I wanted to do here too, was to show that, you know, in addition to the work that we're doing on the space station, ultimately all about improving life on Earth, specific examples of kind of some of the science that are, you know, and work that's happening there that that applies um, in that way. I mean, over 90 percent of the information that we need to solve problems like climate change are coming from space. It's just that simple. And and then I wanted to really showcase some examples of people down here on earth, groups down here on earth that are already really living like earthlings, living like crewmates and doing their best to rally and, and solve these problems. And I don't think climate change is the only thing you can apply these, these strategies, these yeah. ways of being to. I know I've probably asked you this before, Nicole, but um, I know in, in the book, you, 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 you do talk about the importance, I suppose, of having humans to be able to describe things that robots can't do. And I know there is a lot of talk about just sending robots to, to, to explore uh, space, but um, what, what was it like the first time? Uh, I know you've been asked it so many times, but it, it, is, it is always lovely to hear a different astronaut talk about what it was like the first time the thrusters hit and you um, 
launch yourself off this planet, <laughs> uh, I suppose. Something that you, you, in the book, you say you never even dreamed or thought that was, was, was a path for you. What was it like, your first space flight? Yeah, and I would say it was the same for the second one, too. It's, there's a, I mean, overwhelming, incredible, awesome, surreal, all those words come to mind, right? And that's whether that's the power of, you know, what it, it, what's necessary to lift you off that launch pad into space, you know, on the space shuttle, that was like 7 million pounds of thrust you know, underneath you, the reality of that coming to life this up until that that the zero hits and the countdown really not believing that it's even gonna happen it just seems so surreal out of yeah out of this world so surreal so impossible that something like this could be a reality for you and then like, to, like i know you have a child it, was i it, do was it was it the same uh um, like, was it because i know when our first child was born it was so surreal yeah, when yeah. is it similar or is, is that is I, it, I, there are certainly parallels. I, I think nothing tops the child thing. I, I honestly even space travel. Even space travel, because the whole time I was doing this, I'm thinking, oh man, you know, I wish he was here with me. You know, there's this like w- wanting your family to be there with you, and knowing that even at seven, when as which is how old he was when I flew the first time, I'm like, this kid would do great up here, you know, and he would be <laughs> certainly having an awesome time, but. Um, and that, and that's part of it too. You know, that's a, it's a challenge to think about that. Hey, I'm going to strap myself onto this rocket with, with 7 million pounds of exploding, you know, rocket thrust underneath me to get me to space is what's the, you know, this return on investment, the, the risk assessment kind of thing. And, and for me, that was believing and still believing that what we do there is, I mean, it's about his future. It's about the future of the planet. It's about, the reality of of us having the opportunity to create a future here on earth that is as beautiful as it looks from space through some of this work and and certainly nothing beats the view out the window <laughs> do you miss it terribly i mean surely having been there everything else on earth is a disappointment you know, I will not agree with that. I will not agree with that. I just re- returned from a trip to Antarctica. That was like something I never, it, just like space, I never imagined that that would be a reality for me. And I, I'm like getting goosebumps thinking about it, just like I do about space. I miss space. I live vicariously through my friends that I see on TV, that I talk to via email and and watch the adventure that they're having and the work they're doing. I, I It looks so familiar to me. I want, I, I want to feel that again. I want to experience that again, but oh my God, I'm looking out the window here in a, in a city where I don't live and the grass is green and the sky is blue. And I mean, there is awe and wonder around us everywhere. You do not have to go to space to, you know, acknowledge the power of us living on a planet, being earthlings and the, you know, the thin blue line. I mean, that's with me every day. That's what I want other people to find too is like, what, what is it that can, they can experience here on earth, open up their hearts and minds to, so they have that same awesomeness, that same surreal feeling that I had, you know, looking at earth from space. And I find that in other ways now. Well, well that, um, I suppose that love story that you've written to the, the, the planet, um, that awesomeness and that uh, wonder certainly comes through. It's called Back to Earth, What Life in Space Taught Me About Our Home Planet and Our Mission to Protect It. Uh, Nicole Stott, retired NASA astronaut. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. 